Paul, thank you very much for coming to talk to me. We're sat here in uh, Rocker, an Italian restaurant here in South Kensington, London, and we're here to discuss your latest book, The Future of Capitalism, Facing the New Anxieties. The first thing the reader will see when they turn to the inside cover is a picture of two children, you and your cousin Sue, to whom the book is dedicated. You and Sue were born on the same day, but your lives took very different paths from about the age of 14. Could you tell us how this story correlates with the wider concerns of the book? Yeah. So what I've lived is a a series of bitter personal tragedies that I've been one removed from. And those tragedies happened to coincide with the terrible rifts tearing our societies apart. My cousin and I were both born in fairly poor families in Sheffield. We both got to grammar schools. And then her life derailed. It was the early 1960s. Poet Philip Larkin has a great line, sexual intercourse began in 1963. He has another line saying, which was just too late for me. Well, it was certainly too early for me, but it wasn't too early for her. And, uh, and so she became a teenage mother. Um, her two daughters became teenage mothers. And so the tragedy of a momentary derailment set in not just as permanent for her, but as intergenerational. And meanwhile, I've been as fortunate as Sue was unfortunate. And of course, I grew up in Sheffield, the city of steel. It had been a city of steel for 700 years. It's in Chaucer. And in the early 80s, after I'd left, it broke. Everybody knows about how Sheffield got broken. It's just they don't realize it's Sheffield because they've seen the full Monty and they forget that's Sheffield. That's my relatives. And that's the other big divide that's opened up, the big rift in our societies, is between the booming agglomeration, here we are in London, and the broken cities, of which Sheffield is an example. And that is true not just in Britain, it's true across the Western world. Yes, I I watched the full Monty in preparation for this interview. I was nine when it came out in cinemas. (laughs) Uh, I do remember it, of course, being a major blockbuster, but it's a very moving film. Now... In order to explain some of the new anxieties, you give an analysis of the ideas behind social democracy, which from about 1945 until the 1970s worked pretty well in practice because of the social fabric that girded society after the Second World War. Tell us a little bit about how these ideas emerge at that point in history. Well, I think what guided our future immediately after the Second World War was the same principle that had guided us in the first derailment of capitalism, which was in the 1840s. If I may, I'll go back to that derailment, that first derailment. And that happened exactly in the the northern English cities because that was the birth of industrial capitalism. Industrial capitalism made people much more productive. They flocked to these new factories and became more productive. That's the good news. And the bad news was that what people hadn't realized was when you bring masses of people together in cities you get sewage mixed up with drinking water you get contagion of diseases Um, and the food that people are eating readily becomes rotten because you've no storage and so life expectancy in these cities collapsed absolutely collapsed it was never very high in the by the 1840s in rural areas about 33 for a laborer But in the cities, it fell to 19. I spoke to my grandmother on the phone the other day, and uh, she was born and grew up in Bradford, once the engine of Europe, if not the world. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. And during the call, I asked about her memories growing up there, in particular the significance for her of one former resident of the city, a man called Titus Salt. She had a lot to say about him, and he's a bit of a hero of yours too. For the benefit of those who've never heard the name, who was Titus Salt? Titus Salt was an industrialist. He was an inventor, and he became the biggest industrialist in Bradford. Um, And then he became the mayor. Um, He was mayor in 1849. Um, And in 1849, cholera struck Bradford. And so thousands of his citizens were dying. And of course, in the 1840s, nobody knew what to do about it. And so they just died. But I think that had a searing experience on him because he then became a massive philanthropist. He became the Bill Gates of his time. His entire fortune he gave away. So he created the first purpose-built, clean industrial town in the world, which is called Saltair, which is now a World Heritage Centre. That's right. She was telling me about it in a Yorkshire accent, as you can imagine. It's beautiful, Jack. You have to see it. People still live in Saltair to this day. That does that. And and (laughs) you get another town called Rochdale, where the workers face these anxieties, and they do the same thing. They build a new system through reciprocal obligations and that is the birth of the world cooperative movement Halifax, this little town just a little way from Sheffield the same process, the same anxieties a building society which grew to be Britain's biggest bank that was the 1840s the basic principle was in response to these new anxieties you find pragmatic solutions through the ethics of reciprocity the example we have today that still stands and is, and is well known for its mutual structure is, of course, John Lewis. And this is the phenomenon of the responsible firm that was that you describe in the book. What went wrong? We get both the responsible firm and the responsible citizen in the period 1945 until about 1970. And that is the, the finest hour of... Uh, of reciprocal obligations because reciprocal obligations which started local went national. What went wrong with it was that there was a huge eroding hidden asset which was that we fought World War II together and so there was a great sense of we were a, we, were we. Um, the, the fortunate had obligations to the less fortunate because they recognised they were fortunate Where did that go? Well, both the right and the left got captured by new ideologies. Instead of pragmatism, we move to ideology. So on the right, essentially Milton Friedman does it, uh, with a new doctrine that the sole purpose of the firm is to make profit. And that is allied to, on the right, a diagnosis that government is the problem. And you won't remember Thatcher's slogan either. There's no such thing as society. There's just the economy, and the economy can be analysed, detached completely from government and uh, and society. Um, the the economy depends upon markets, and anything that we do to markets causes distortions. And so the challenge is to get rid of all the distortions, create big incentives for people to make as much money as possible because that way 
the invisible hand guides the economy to a happy outcome. Capitalism can be left on autopilot, according to the ideologues of the market. It's derailed three times, big time. It can't be left on autopilot. It's the only system that has the potential to drive up mass living standards continuously, but it only works as long as we periodically save it from itself. Um, so the right went into this um, philosophy of the market, as long as it is allowed to rip, will raise all boats. And that was where you got this slogan, greed is good. That trope of the invisible hand has been used by libertarians, which is a sort of a, a blanket justification for many decades now. But even Adam Smith understood the importance of reciprocal obligation. Absolutely. So his, his more important book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, the great tragedy is that the two books were two books. And so economics just focused on the wealth of nations and nobody bothered to read The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is about obligations in society. Sorry, I took us off track there for a moment. No, no, it was a good point. Um, so that's what's happening on the, on the right. And then on the left, you get a different set of ideologies. You get the utilitarian philosophy, which is such a ridiculously silly philosophy that very few serious philosophers buy into it. But it was just amazingly convenient for economists because econ economics is about maximizing individual utilities but then utilitarianism said all you need to do is add them up and you maximize total utility yippee we've got something to maximize we know how to do it and then economics produces this absurd mickey mouse creature economic man and all economic man cared about was consumption he hated work he was lazy but he liked he was infinitely greedy and so the economics job of of maximizing total utility was a simple matter of using the tax system to take money off rich people and give it to people who were poor who could thereby consume more in other words a giant benefit street um, subject to not weakening too much the incentives of the rich people so that was the sole design idea behind um, behind economic policy towards tax and so on. It was all about a trade-off between efficiency, which was about incentives, and equity. There's no ethics in there. Let's talk about that in just a moment, because yeah. you mentioned taxation. It's the 19th century economist you praise for having succeeded on both the ethical score... Um, and also the pragmatic score, We're and that is Henry, Henry George. Henry George, yeah. who argued for taxation on land value. His ideas were never implemented because the wealthy at the time stood to lose too much from them. Um, but you argue that today's growing metropolises present a golden opportunity to give Georgism, as it's known, a shot. Absolutely, especially because the last 40 years we've had these booming big agglomerations, and the big beneficiaries of that have been the landowners in those agglomerations. They've not done anything to get that land appreciation, they just own it. Henry George wasn't a socialist. He just said the, the rise in land values is clearly produced by everybody in the community, indeed everybody in the country. You know, if you think of London, it's the beneficiary of being at the hub of our national rail networks. It's got our two main international airports. It's got our road net hub. Um, it's got the rule of law which is a huge importance for the city of London, who produced the rule of law? 
not Londoners, the whole of Britain, right? In heroic struggles. Henry George was right up to a point. He was right when he wrote. And what my colleague Tony Venables and I have done, and it's an important part of the of the book, is show that once you introduce a lot of skilled labor into the analysis, um, a lot of the economic rents no longer get captured by the landowners. They shift to the highly skilled people in the metropolis. So that fancy London lawyer who only rents a bedsit and spends her money on high living in wonderful restaurants, she doesn't pay much of her high salary to landowners because she barely occupies much, much land. Part of what I'm arguing is that we should be taxing those economic rents as best we can. Sometimes it will be taxing the landowners, we should certainly do that, but it will also be taxing the highly skilled when they locate in agglomerations. They should be paying a higher rate of top-end income tax than if they located in Sheffield. It sounds as though those who will be stung most by this tax proposal that you've just given are aspiring metropolitan workers or those who have indeed come into the city and and made a, a pretty good go of it. Does this take on the problem of financial elites or is this just taking out the middle? This is, it's certainly not taking out the middle because it, the, the higher taxes at higher income mm. um, will, will take out the, the top as well. But it's not the only thing we need to do. We need to bring productivity to the half of society that at the moment is adrift. And that is partly investing more in the skills of the... Uh, less cognitively gifted half of society and it's partly a matter of bringing firms to the cities that have been broken. Both of those are feasible. Other countries do them. We don't. Let's go back to that term you use in the book and that is social maternalism. What is social maternalism and how does it serve society better? So social maternalism basically has as its objective let, let's make everybody Um, by the time they're an adult um, as productive as possible not because we want to maximize output we want to give everybody dignity and dignity comes not just from consumption financed by benefits dignity comes from being an active part contributing to society in order to contribute people must be endowed with skills that make them productive and be living somewhere where there are firms that want those skills. And so we need, in big provincial cities, we need firms that need skills and we need a process of training people up in those skills. That training begins very early on in life because we know so much of what goes wrong starts to go wrong by the age of three. Yeah, Dean, there's a fact mentioned about the damage that unstable parenting causes uh, a child's DNA, even, which I found quite shocking. I didn't know this. This is our, devastating. Go our on. Chromosomes are, are protected at both ends by what are known as telomeres, which protect cells from damage. And, and these can actually start to erode in a child between the ages of one and nine if the child lacks a consistent father figure. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. But they erode big time. It's not just that they erode. Mm. By the age of nine, they've eroded 40%. Now, to put that into Mm. the scale, if you double household income, the length of the telomeres increases by 5%. 
So the damage done in the first nine years by an unstable family structure is an order of magnitude bigger than we can ever compensate for, no matter how much money we give that, that family. And the absence, the, the total absence of a father figure is actually irreparable. Exactly. So what is the social maternalism? It's helping families all the way along, from the birth of the child right through schooling, and then post-schooling in vocational training. Um, don't we do that already? No, we don't. First of all, we muddle up help for the family with scrutiny of the family. And that's the problem with social paternalism. And so we must undo that. This is where we get on to the hard centre. The book, of course, calls for a return to pragmatism, which you define as drawing on the evidence of context, prudence and practical reasoning. It's the pragmatists, after all of the last 200 years, whose ideas and policies, you argue, have been most beneficial to societies. Pierre Trudeau's legacy in Canada, Paul Kagame's in Rwanda, and I would argue most notably Deng Xiaoping's in China. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yet in the throes of radical responses to the political upheaval of the past few years, centrism has depreciated to such a point where, if you call yourself a centrist, those on the right or left regard you with suspicion, if not as an outright enemy. Uh, And this is because centrists often hold a political position, but rather than take a firm moral stance, choose instead to diffuse tension by reversion to the mean or what has already been tried. You're, of course, proposing some things that haven't been tried and some that have, but which you argue did once work and can work again. How do you convince those who say there's simply no going back from where we are now? I um, I don't really want to frame it as going back. What pragmatism does is say, what are the real problems that face us now? What can we do about them? And how can we learn from trying if we don't know what to do? And at the moment, within our society, the two big rifts are this down escalator that the manual workers are on and the decline of a lot of provincial cities. Those are the things that need fixing. These are by no means impossible to fix. They're much less serious than the first two derailments of capitalism. It's just that for 40 years, we've not gotten around to fixing them. And that's why ordinary people have finally mutinied, which is what we're facing around the Western world. Brexit. Trump. In France. As with all mutinies, They are anger at neglect uh, and abandonment. They are not forward-looking strategies. And so um, we are reaping the consequences of the the loss of trust in the centre because the centre has got captured by these ideologies of utilitarianism, of victim groups and that sort of thing, rather than of actually devising practical solutions to these things. Yes, but given that one of the lessons learned by the team that ran the Clinton campaign of 2016 was that the Democrats fundamentally underestimated the utility of emotion, the politics of rage, ideas that are now being spoken of as essential to winning the next US election, for example, how can the hard centre be made popular without becoming populist? Yeah, so we have to embrace the concept of belonging. People want to belong. They want to belong to a community, they want to belong to a country. And we know that belonging to place is a hardwired emotion that even predates the human species. 
Nations are about the biggest group we've ever managed to, to build as a, as a common identity group. Of course, what we've allowed to happen by neglecting belonging is that the notion of the nation has been captured by the fascists. The fascists don't mean nation. What they mean is we are the nation and you're not. Yeah? A genuine sense of nation includes everybody. We're all fated to be in the same place, in the same polity, and so we have to belong together. We have to build this sense of shared identity so that over that sense of shared identity we have a we which can then build these reciprocal obligations. Paul, one of the things that really worries me is that the last time I felt patriotic was last year during the World Cup. People coalesced around this idea of a we for a very short period of time. However, it relied on adversity. Other countries want us to fail. We are going against other countries in the World Cup. What the we relies on is an enemy. That was the we that coalesced at the end of the Second World War. Does this worry you as well? There's always that danger that a we will turn aggressive. It is by no means inevitable. You know, at the moment, most people think lives for their children will be worse than their own. That is an absolute disgrace in a world where technology is rapidly taking potential living standards upwards. And so there is the big unifier, the we of common purpose, common endeavour. We all have a role in building a better future for our children. If I had to point to a trademark feature of your writing, it would be the distinction you often make between two forces perennially at war within us, both collectively and individually, that of the headless heart on the one hand and the heartless head on the other. Which do you find yourself most guilty of letting ensnare you, despite your best efforts? Um, I guess I'm closer to the headless heart. Um, there was one moment where the second generation of my cousin, two little kids born to a teenage mother, were in terrible straits, and we, 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 we adopted them. And rather, rather comical, because my, my wife is a sort of ex-economist, but she was the one who started to think, what are the costs and what are the benefits? And I said to her, but we can't take an existential decision like that on the basis of costs and benefits. You know, a moment has arrived, we've got to do something. And to her eternal credit, she thought about it and said, you're absolutely right, we're going to take these kids. We never regretted it, but I guess that was the, uh, the headless heart. Paul Collier, thank you. Thank you.